Hello, folks, and welcome back to Scottish Educators Connect podcast. You're here with me, James. And me, Anita. Today, we're keen to get back into the thick of it as we begin to explore our trauma-informed practice podcast. Throughout our Scottish Educators Connect book blethers, we explored The Whole Brain Child by Dr. Daniel Segal and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. Throughout these discussions, many Scottish practitioners shared their desire to commit to the well-being of children and young people they work with. To this end, we are delighted to be exploring trauma-informed practices and nurturing approaches over a series of podcasts investigating issues which impact schooling and how teachers and practitioners can support. Today, we are joined by a Highland Council Early Years Educational Psychologist, James McTaggart. Hi, James. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Welcome, James, and thank you for spending some time with us today. Uh, James, I know you well, but for our listeners, it would be really great for you to tell us a bit more about yourself, um, your interests and your experiences. Okay, so my name's James McTaggart. I'm an educational psychologist. Uh, I work in Highland. I'm in an early years role, which is kind of, uh, it's a strategic role, so it's roving across different services, uh, trying to think how from pre-birth all the way through until wherever we think early years ends, we can improve outcomes for, for children and support families. Uh, I was really lucky when I was training as a psychologist way back in 2004, I was kind of mentored by three of the then kind of leaders of trauma-informed practice in, in Scotland. I'll just give them a, a name check in case anyone remembers them. So Mike O'Connor and Alison Russell and Helen Myers, uh, who learned a lot about trauma in the response to the Dunblane tragedy and started a tradition of trauma-informed work in Scottish educational psychology. So they got me really, really into trauma and how we help children and families who've experienced trauma. And it's been a kind of a key part of my career all the way, all the way through. I'm really glad to have this conversation with you, James. Um, I make no secret of how experiences in my childhood and teenage years impact, sure. I would say, completely my practice, most particularly in my um, relationships with tiny humans and their families. Um, I would consider my own practice to be trauma-informed, both from research and learning, but also informed by my own experiences James, can you briefly talk about trauma-informed practice? What is it and why should we be trauma-informed in schools? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think you've, you've almost captured what it is. We can make this really, really complicated, uh, which is sometimes useful, or we can make it really, really simple. Uh, the essence of trauma-informed practice is realising that the people who show up in our schools are people. They have experiences, they have internal lives of emotions and thoughts and plans and trying to respond to those as as we see them. So anything that we do, which is around thinking about the child or the young person and responding to where they are now, whether that's in their emotions or just as importantly in their learning, um, then we're basically being trauma-informed. I mean, obviously, there's more to it than, than that, which we'll, we'll probably come to, but that's the essence, just describing what you do, do Anita. Um, in terms of why, I think the why might be worth doing before the, the what. Um, there's sort of three levels to the why. I think the first level is that trauma in childhood is really common. Uh, lots and lots of people have experienced one or more things in their childhood which was, which was traumatic for them. Uh, there was a study in The Lancet in 2019 uh, looked at this and they found that just under a third of under-18s reported trauma exposure at some point in their, in their childhood. Uh, and nearly 10% of young people actually met criteria for, for post-traumatic stress disorder. So trauma is really common, and it has quite a deep impact in, in children's lives. That's often shown in other ways. It might show up as depression. It might show up as what we might call conduct disorder. It might show up in using alcohol or drugs to self-medicate. It might show up in self-harm. It can also show up in being really quiet and withdrawn. Uh, the children who mysteriously don't achieve, despite everything apparently going for them and it can show up as well in in being a being a bit of a hyper achiever uh, which i'll freely admit was how i expressed my, my my childhood trauma and probably probably still do the second level of why is okay it's really common but we can really help with this uh, people don't need to be doomed by their past there's much more to them than their trauma and there's loads and loads of small ways in school and some big ways too that we can help them uh, so because we can do that it's something that's really worth thinking about. 
And I think the third level is that if we do trauma-informed practice in education, we're actually doing things which will benefit um, all the, the children and young people, uh, both because lots of them experience trauma, lots of them will experience trauma, but also the core trauma-informed practice, being mindful about children and responding to their needs, that's just the essence of good education. Thanks for that, James. I think for me, we've I've had the privilege of spending some rather lengthy car journeys with you hearing around <laughs> about your um, experiences as we've, um, as we've you, driven over the wonderful <laughs> scenic routes across the, across the highlands. And, and it sounds Fiker. traumatic in itself, James. <laughs> it was terrible. It was very rude about my parking. <laughs> and I think that, um, well, I've definitely benefited from from your experience as a, as a trauma-informed uh, psychologist. But I think for for educators, that can be something that can seem quite abstract and quite daunting at times. And as you mentioned there, actually the key and the art of this is in the is in the simplicity of of being trauma informed and that concept of of being mind minded and and attuned to the child or or the young person. <clears throat> and so, if it was for you, what would you say? Are, is the most important aspect for us to consider, or, or if you can't just have one, in terms of what are the most important aspects for educators in terms of trauma-informed practice? Yeah, so it's very easy, I think, to start with strategies, but I think that's the wrong place to start. Uh, what we love in education is a whole list of things to do and some, some ways to track and monitor them and quality assure them. But I think it, it's more truth? important to start... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, it, it's probably more important to start with how we think. Uh, so when we're working with young people to try and be aware of how they're experiencing that moment, and when we're encountering responses and behaviours that puzzle us, to start to think about those in terms of what the child's experience of the situation might be. Uh, so I can maybe this maybe use us with an example, uh, something which comes along from time to time are children who they might do really nice work, they might do a lovely drawing or write a really great story. Uh, they're praised for it and their response is to ball it up and throw it in the bin or tear it up uh, or they'll, they'll burst into tears. So that's an example of the kind of behaviour which sort of puzzles us because it doesn't really fit what's just happened. They've done something really good, we've said we're really pleased with it and, and they seem to have reacted in, in that way. So. There's loads of ways we could handle that. There's lots of things that might be the right strategy, but to get to the right strategy, we've got to think about it in the right way. So what we need to do is this kind of reflective step of thinking, okay, it's almost as if, if I did that, what would I be feeling? What would I be thinking? And it might well be that I'd be thinking things like, it's really not good enough. I'm no good. I might have feelings of shame. I might just not be able to cope with feeling happy. That might be something that, that I find really, really difficult and that I have to fend off. So then once we've got that kind of idea that obviously if I praise this child for really, really good work, it tips them into feeling ashamed or, or worthless, you can maybe think of some other ways to to, to approach the, the situation. So there's that, that kind of reflective step and you really can't get past that. And I suppose it's what I meant when I said, in a way, this is just good education. This is just good teaching because we do that all the time. If we want to introduce a new topic in a class or a new concept, we're thinking about what's already in the children's heads. So it's really just an extension of that teaching practice into thinking about children's emotional lives as well. I really like that um, description there that you used of the reflective step to be more important before we think of strategies. And certainly yeah. um, from my experience as a child who had experienced trauma and now as yeah. an adult looking back on that child, <clears throat> I remember very distinctly important relationships that I would now consider yeah. as relationships which changed my childhood for the better or relationships which led on to me succeeding and doing well in school. And I get yeah. quite uncomfortable as a teacher or a practitioner now reflecting on that and thinking, was that a real relationship that I was experiencing or was it a strategy that a teacher was putting in place? And I find as an adult now having a little bit of conflict about those positive experiences as a child and what might have driven them. 
And I think um, children, particularly children who are finding school a bit difficult, they, they're able somehow to see that you're using a strategy. Maybe it's because they don't quite feel that that relationship is is maybe as deep or connected as, as you think it is as a teacher. I don't know what you think there. Yeah, I think it's a little bit about the authenticity of it, Anita. So um, <clears throat> a lot of this does feel a bit artificial because as teachers, you, you may well be trying to manage a situation. So you're, you're, you're doing things. So it will feel a little bit like doing too. What I think children respond to, um, I mean, a lot of the time, just in our normal adult lives, we go to people for help and advice and they're usually pretty useless and they give us advice we don't want and we're not going to take. Um, but what we respond to is what they were, what we respond to is what they were trying to help us. Um, and even very, very young children, you know, babies can pick up that we're trying to help. Uh, what we're doing may be, you know, as useful as a chocolate teapot, but what really conveys is that we're trying to help. And I think the essential quality there is the authenticity. So if I'm doing <clears throat> a reflective step with you so we can get on to algebra as quickly as possible, that's going to come across as manipulation and the kind of thing that you're worried about. If I'm doing exactly the same things with you because I value you as a person and I value where you are now, and I also know that the algebra is important, but we're going to get to that, <laughs> then that's a totally different experience. And I think it feels completely different. I think something which can be really, really hard for practitioners in education is to realise that in our lovely, well-run schools, where we do all we can to care for the children and we do it really, really brilliantly, there's still going to be children who feel really, really unsafe. And that can be quite challenging for a practitioner and it can lead us into a little bit of panic as well because we, we, we will naturally empathise with that. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think that sometimes it might appear that it doesn't matter the kind of effort or authenticity or real care that you put into a relationship for some children they still just don't feel safe at school. And I think that for many children that I've worked with and that I've come across, school hasn't been a safe space. They haven't come across adults who can really invest or have really invested the time to care for their situation yeah. and their trauma and to nurture that either in the classroom or, or outside of the classroom. And children, they know when you aren't really invested in them. That's something that I've picked up over my, my years as a teacher is that children know quite clearly the teachers who really care about them and really have time for them. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's, it's probably <clears throat> two levels to this. Uh, so, I mean, yes, I mean, it, 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 it's still more widespread than it should be in education, but people don't necessarily think in this way and react in this way. Uh, and there's there's probably a whole other conversation about why that is and the kind of pressures around around schools uh, and the school system and and so on. Um, but it, it's also true, and it, it may be worth just talking a little bit about traumatic memories and what they are and how they how they how they how they work. Um, yeah. That even with all the right things going on, children may still be encountering um, traumatic triggers. Um, so I wonder, is it, is it useful if I just talk a little bit about traumatic memories and what they are? And, and, Absolutely. And how they yes, form? please. <laughs> yeah. OK, so basically, <laughs> uh, again, this, this is some really, really complicated stuff, but the essence of it is is really quite simple. So traumatic memories form to keep us safe. Uh, so it's not people being ill or being damaged. They've formed a traumatic memory because they've had a really, really difficult experience. And the brain adapts to that by kind of storing it away in a special pocket because you never know it might be needed again. So it's usually some kind of sudden discovery that the world isn't a safe place. And we can think of all the different ways in which children might suddenly feel unsafe uh, or might feel unsafe in an ongoing way. So there's the obvious things like sexual or physical abuse. Um, but there can be much, much smaller things like the illness of a loved one can be really, really traumatic for a child, especially if it's unexpected or they don't know what's going on. So what happens is the brain sort of stores that away in a, in a packet because it's like, you know, you were charged by an elephant unexpectedly last Tuesday. So now the world's full of elephants. So you really, really <laughs> need to respond to, to elephants. So it's, it's a safety mechanism. And it's a bit different to an ordinary memory. So if I ask you to think about, I don't know, a holiday two years ago, it's hopefully a pleasurable, not a traumatic example I've picked. Uh, 
I've got a bit of form in picking accidentally traumatic examples when I talk about this. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> a, a, a nice holiday a couple of years ago. You can sort of remember it, but it's sort of a bit vague. It's probably a little bit sort of fragments of, of memory. Sometimes it's a little bit black and white. You might get a few feelings of happiness as you think about it. And then you can not think about it again. So it's kind of under voluntary control and it's a bit faded. Traumatic memories are a bit different. They stay really, really strong and really, really vivid. And what they tend to be is a sort of bundle of some of the intense feelings from the traumatic experience, some thoughts attached around that. And I want to talk a little bit more about the thoughts and cognitions in a minute, because they're really useful for, for helping if you remind me if I forget. Um, and there's also a whole bunch of uncompleted actions. And they typically form into the classic, and I find it really difficult to say these quickly, but I'm going to try, fight, flight, freeze, and flop responses, which we can talk about a bit more if you want to. But basically, the traumatic memory, they stay really vivid, and they're not really under our control like ordinary memories. So they can kind of pop up. They can be triggered. So we call that intrusions. And they can be triggered really by anything a little bit like the original experience. So say a child who've experienced, who's experienced physical abuse, um, a trigger for them might be if an adult unexpectedly walks up to their desk in class. Now, they know at one level that it's their te te trusted teacher who they love, and they know the teacher loves them and keeps them in mind. But what they have in that moment is a large person is approaching them and they don't know why. So that might be a trigger. And what they'll experience with that trigger will be the whole wash of terror or helplessness. They'll have a desire to run away or a desire to fight, or they'll freeze to the spot or want to hide under the desk, or they might just go a bit kind of inert, which is which is the flop response. So even when the adults are really caring and doing all the right thing, there can still be triggers around. And it's really, really important that people bear in mind that when kids encounter triggers in school or at home, no one's doing anything wrong. We've just learned that there's a trigger. And once we've learned that there's a trigger, we can learn how to adapt it. So in the example I just gave you, the adult might gently say the child's name before approaching them to give them notice so that they know what's happening and it's not a, not a surprise. Um, I've kind of rambled on. Was that, that sort of clear? Is there anything you want to ask me about that that I've, that I've muddled up? I think it's really interesting that you describe the fight, flight, freeze or flop responses to, to triggers for ch yeah. children who have experienced trauma or are carrying um, traumatic memories. I think it's certainly yeah. something in my role in the early years that I've experienced a lot with small children. This certainly yeah. um, children who haven't yet learned to regulate their emotions, that fight or flight thing happens yeah. quite a lot in the nursery and um even uh -huh. for some children it, it looks like them maybe having physical outbursts towards other children near them or towards adults and it's the sort of behavior I think that would previously in schools be described as you know unacceptable behavior rule breaking we need to have the, these yeah. children are not safe to be in school they can't be here and actually, I yeah. think that this trauma-informed approach softens the way in which adults regard these children and actually what we're starting to see behind the behavior is a communication yeah yeah so in a way i mean not everybody thinks naturally in emotional language so so i talked earlier about the reflective step being thinking about what are the emotions going on here so is it shame is it terror whatever uh, some people just because of the way we're made think more naturally in terms of externals and that's fine so i think you can look at a behavior and ask yourself can I reasonably describe this as a form of fight, flight, freezing, or flopping? And if you can, then you, you may be you may be talking about a, a child who's being who's being triggered into it to experiencing a, a traumatic memory, and thinking about how those different things can be can be described. So, not starting a worksheet can be a form of freeze. There are really obvious versions of fight, you know, like throwing a chair at somebody uh but there there are a smaller versions of of fight such as as you were mentioning you know being just a little bit more easily triggered into into into, into rage or 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 whatever um and i think it's important for people to realize that when people are experiencing 
trigger traumatic memory, they are already engaged in a struggle with it because it's really, really unpleasant when traumatic memories are triggered. It's not nice. It's very frightening for children when they suddenly feel full of rage or terror and a great desire to run away or to fight or, or whatever. So they're probably already engaged in a struggle with it. So uh, it's really, really good if we can just slow things down and allow a bit of time and reduce the amount of language we're throwing at them. Uh, be present to them, but not too close, because uh, we don't want to disrupt them because they're, they're really struggling for control. But I think the other thing to bear in mind is that that effort will very often fail, and especially for younger children, but just as much for older children and for adults too, because these memories are really, really strong. And the subjective feeling is that it's all happening all over again. And again, that can be really puzzling in a classroom because all I did was ask them what they did at the weekend and they're suddenly in, un, inconsolably crying. And that can be really, really challenging to, to make the connections. Yeah, and I think I just wanted to mention, you know, you spoke about maybe more obvious ways that that fight yeah. um, expression or communication can be observed. And I remember my experience yeah. in high school and thinking back to my fight response to remembering or feeling unsafe at high sure. school would be to goad yeah. my teachers and threaten and yeah. become really yeah, yeah, yeah. loud and rambunctious and physically threatening just in my demeanor to them in the classroom in the yeah. way that I would speak with them. But actually, yeah. looking back, I feel like I was almost kind of telling them, just throw me out the classroom so that I can get out of here. And that's yeah. what I was doing. Yeah. So our brains will do anything that they can think of to get us safe. So they will get us chucked out of class. They will get us chucked out of school. They will get us sent to jail. They will do whatever is necessary <laughs> for us to feel safe again. Um, and again, it's you, you talked about behaviour as communication. And I think that's really important. I think we need to take it beyond that being a kind of mantra to what do these behaviours tell us? What is the thing yeah. being communicated and i think yeah. the 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 other thing we were talking about subtle ways um something which is really really common is different kinds of avoidance uh so children will avoid triggers so a child might avoid talking to their teacher at all and feel really really hard to reach because they don't want to get into conflict because they 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 do not feel that they can keep control of things and they will end up in what you described as, as goading. Uh, so they will withdraw instead. Uh, or children will suddenly stop doing the things that used to give them pleasure. Uh, or children will mysteriously avoid certain pieces of work. Uh, they will want to sit near the door. They'll want to sit near the window. There are all kinds of ways in which probably we have to give up a little bit of control so that they feel a little bit more safety and, and that can pose some dilemmas for, for managing the classroom as well. Yeah, interesting. So I was supposed to ask you a question a while ago, but I got really into right. your discussions about the, the traumatic memories and fight, flight, yeah, freeze or flop. So before, well, before I ask you that question, you said if you forgot, we were to remind you about thoughts and cognitions. Oh, golly, yes, the cognitions. Um, so <laughs> the... <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> I think these are these these are really really important because they're a, they're a component of traumatic memory that is talked about a bit less. Uh, if you look on uh, social media or various websites, there's loads and loads of really good stuff about emotional regulation. Uh, but sometimes we think in terms of a. I don't know why I'm holding up my fingers in a triangle, but I am. So imagine you can see my fingers in a triangle, and the three corners are there's behaviour, there's feelings, and then there's thoughts or cognitions. And that sort of triad is is basically how we how we tick. Children who've experienced trauma, well, anyone who's experienced trauma, they take away from it not just the actions, the fight, flight, freeze, and the emotions, the fear, the terror, the rage, whatever, but it's usually also a bunch of thoughts. So it's kind of intruding thoughts like I'm not safe. Really, really common for children who've experienced trauma is they tend to think it was their fault. And that's absolutely heartbreaking. I have worked with 10, 12-year-old children who witnessed um, domestic violence when they were really, really small, and they will honestly tell me that they think they should have stopped it somehow. 
and they were three years old. So they take from it this idea that it's their fault, whatever it was. So there was a house fire because dot, dot, dot. Granny died because I didn't talk to her on the phone last Tuesday. But I'll just take these things away. And they'll go through life with these really horrible beliefs about themselves, that I'm a bad person, uh, that everything bad that happens is my fault. But this will also translate into other things. So they might have a sense that there's not really a future. So you might have thoughts like there's no point trying. My life can never change. My life will never get better. I will never succeed. Uh, and they might really honestly not have a sense of their future life. And the reason I mention these cognitions is that in education, we are really powerful in being able to give children the opposite experiences. So we can give children experiences where they can do good things. And bearing in mind the example I started with, we then don't want to go overboard with the praise on that because we'll overwhelm yeah. them. But little experiences... <laughs> I've done something good, so I may not be all bad. Yeah. Little experiences of how they can change the world and get things done. Little experiences in which they're not a bad person because here's someone who's valuing me and spending time with me. Uh, little experiences that I might have a future that makes sense. And a, a key theme for me, and something I occasionally get into trouble on Twitter over, is that education itself is a traumatic intervention. Uh, because it helps children build a future, it helps them build a sense of self-efficacy when it when it's well when it's well done, uh, with within a a context of positive relationships. So uh, again, we can look at behaviours and think, well, how would I feel about myself if I was doing that? And then think, okay, how can this how can I help this child learn the opposite thing about themselves? And that's often the best thing that that we can do for them. Thank you, James. Yeah. What was your question that, that we, we My forgot? My question was, um, <laughs> where can... <laughs> where? Well, actually, the reason that I popped this question in here is because I've had some recent yeah. um, learning and experience on complex post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. and how one of the main, <clears throat> I mean, I suppose, medically speaking, we would call it symptom of that, is this idea of negative thoughts and cognitions about oneself, yeah, yeah. one carrying yeah. and it's more you know um i think more related to children and young people who experience trauma over a long period of time and this belief yeah. like you said that they're at fault somehow they're uh -huh. to blame they're not good enough yeah. really low self-esteem yeah, yeah. and so <clears throat> my yeah. question is where can educators where can the layman get more information on the impacts of trauma and how how we can help and where, where's the kind of policy landscape yeah, yeah. in Scotland going with trauma-informed yeah. practices. Yeah. yeah. So just before I do that, can I just go back to what was at the basis of your question? Because I think it's, it's useful just to talk about the differences between simple trauma and complex trauma and developmental yeah, trauma. Uh, because in a way, uh, these end up being squidged all together and it's not always helpful. Yeah, they do. Always <laughs> it's not yeah. always helpful so, at all, yeah. No, 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 no. So, I mean... If you type into any search engine, um, simple trauma and complex trauma, it'll take you to things like the American Center for Disease Control and so on, which have really, really good definitions. Um, there's a thing called the National Trauma Network in the United States has really, really good definitions. Uh, really, really good source for information in the United Kingdom is it's a wonderful therapeutic institution called Beacon House. Uh, so if you put in a search engine, Beacon House Trauma, they have lots and lots of resources and really, really good uh, animations explaining all this stuff in, in much better ways than you can do with just just words. Uh, but I can kind of sum it up with just words. So simple trauma usually refers to a single incident. So, you know, it's one unfortunate event, uh, which can still be really, really impactful. Uh, and that can bring some some negative cognitions about about the self. It usually has a fairly simpler array of array of triggers. Um, so, uh, say, someone who was <clears throat> barked at suddenly by a large dog and really, really frightened when they were small, dogs might be an obvious trigger. So might sudden loud, loud noises. So usually the triggers are fairly easy to understand. Complex trauma is when people experience a lot or when it goes on for a long time or when it's really, really, really overwhelming stuff. And 
you can really tell it by its effects. It's more the effects from the events, actually. So the effects would be kind of loads and loads and loads of triggers in their life. They might be more likely to be dissociated. Uh, so that sense of their kind of cut off from life, uh, much, much more hopeless, uh, many, many more triggers around them. In my experience, I have to say with children, most simple traumas turn out to be quite complex in their effects because children are mostly powerless. The world is very mysterious. They don't know what's going on all of the time. So, so often the, that distinction isn't so useful. And then the last thing, uh, and this is where one can get into a bit of hot water because people get upset about this, is um, so what I would call developmental trauma, what other people might call adversity, which is also absolutely fine. Uh, and it's what the, the kind of ACEs discourse is, is pointing at in its way. And that's trauma that is sufficiently deep and happens sufficiently early that it actually affects how the brain develops, so how the early stress system develops. And it, it's basically, again, a process of adaptation. So the young child will be picking up signals that this is a really, really dangerous world, and they will start to develop the brain and body in order to be able to cope with that. And one thing that the ACEs studies show us really well is that that has very, very long-term effects on, on, on health and well-being into adulthood, because it, it affects the basic, basic metabolism. Uh, so those are kind of the distinctions. In terms of what we do in school, we maybe don't have to get too bogged down in that because we're seeing what we're seeing. Uh, and very often we don't actually know about a child's traumatic history, but we can still respond to their needs in the moment and think how to adapt the environment for them, for them going forward. Um, is that kind of okay on that, or have I just confused things? Oh, that's amazing! No, you've right. not. No, you've not confused things at all. I think it's really important right. that that we explore these things um, a bit deeper. And I think sometimes um, education can be a little bit guilty of offering strategies or or um, kind of movements without really offering yeah. the ways in which teachers or um, and practitioners can explore more deeply yeah. what it is that they're trying to do yeah. in the classrooms and yeah. when we've got a shallow understanding of anything <clears throat> in education we're not really doing a strategy or an approach justice thank you for that james yeah and i, and I think that's fair enough because in in a way uh when i said i first started doing this stuff in 2004 it's always been a constant source of surprise how uh, immediately relatable this tends to be for educators as as material because they say, oh, yes, I see that all the time. Uh, on the other hand, it's it stayed still quite far from the education system. Uh, and there's probably loads and loads of reasons for that. But it, just coming back to your question, in Scotland, I think we're in a really good place right now. Uh, so uh, I alluded earlier that the, the kind of historical roots of trauma informed work in Scotland go back a long way. Uh, they, they predate ACES studies or or, or, or any of those yeah. kinds of things. They go way, way back into the 80s and 90s and actually a little bit earlier. Some pioneering social workers were around in the, in the 70s uh, building this kind of stuff. But it's kind of all coming to a head now in terms of national policy and awareness. So there's things like the ACES hub springing up, you know, around viewings of resilience film and so on, which is absolutely great. You know, the public awareness is, is increasing and that's marvellous. And policy is starting to capture the journey really well. So I'm going to just mention a few national things which are really, really worth looking up. Um, so there is now a national trauma framework, uh, which uh, encapsulates the Scottish government's ambition that all people facing services are going to be trauma informed. And they're going to be trauma informed, not just for their service users, but for ourselves too. So if we if we if we work in them, we will be able to experience a trauma informed environment ourselves. So you can get a hold of a national trauma framework if you go to the uh, NHS education uh, website. The easiest way to find it is just to to put into a search engine. Um, I keep trying. To, I keep saying Google, and I shouldn't. Other ones exist. So if you pop into a search engine. <laughs> uh, just NHS education trauma framework or words like that, it'll take you to it. There is an absolutely brilliant video on there called Sowing the Seeds, which is 15, 20 minutes of pure gold explaining about childhood trauma and how it impacts on, on, on children. Um, something you'll discover as you'll look at the National Trauma 
framework is that it talks a lot about availability of therapies for children. Uh, there are evidence-based therapies for, for trauma. It's, it's not always true that we never get over things. Uh, they're not widely available yet, but there's an aspiration in Scotland that they will be more widely, widely available. Uh, another key set of things, and I think you're going to do a podcast on this, is Education Scotland's Compassionate and Connected Classroom Resources. Uh, we are. It's the next super, episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that was <clears throat> that was really building on the other flagship thing, which is the Nurturing Schools uh, materials. Uh, so Nurturing Schools, you can think of as a foundation and Compassionate Connected Classrooms takes that a little bit further into the kind of trauma-informed side as opposed to the nurture for all side really really good good resources um and of course directly relevant for educators another key policy document and uh, policy documents sort of immediately think sigh how boring um but i think this one is actually quite a special one it was compiled by someone called katie heverington at public health scotland and it's called ending childhood adversity and what it does is it tries to draw together the different themes and debates and, and and different things along for the last few years in Scotland and sets out a kind of public health message about childhood adversity and trauma, which I think is is really, really strong. So that's worth a look at. Um, and as well, uh, this may be more relevant to early level practitioners. Uh, Scottish governments produce some modules on different aspects of early learning and childcare. Uh, there's a module on, I can't remember exactly what it's called, it's something like social factors uh, uh, and children's development. It's something like that. Although it's branded for early years, you can find it on a Scottish Government website or on the Care Commission website. It's branded for early level practitioners. It's actually a really good introduction for everybody because it goes quite deeply into concepts of resilience and what that is and, and how we can foster it. So those are all really good places to start. If you're wanting a lot more depth, then I've mentioned the, the Beacon House uh, website. That's really, really good. Uh, another one for, especially for the more developmental trauma side, is it's American, but it's state-of-the-art research-based, and it's the Harvard Center for the Developing Child. has a wealth of printable stuff, videos, goodness knows what, in quite a few languages as well. It's a really, really good place to to look and it connects very strongly for educators because it's really, really strong on things like executive function and language. So all the things which we are really good or getting a lot better at building in education as as, as sources of resilience. And then there's various names people might follow on Twitter. It's worth a follow of Bruce Perry. Uh, if you don't follow Bruce Perry, he knows as much about trauma uh, as as anybody on the planet really. And if you just see who he retweets, you'll get a sense of, of, of who else might be worth following. Another really great luminous figure in the United Kingdom is Karen Treisman, uh, who's really, really worth a follow. And uh, she maintains a really, really good YouTube channel. With uh, ju She's just absolutely fantastic at explaining things. Uh, she's got some great explanatory videos. She's also got some really good videos on some of the things you can do with children to help them regulate if they're finding things difficult, which are safe for anybody to do. So that's really worth a look to. Amazing. I think when Thank this you, uh, podcast goes out, James, you're definitely going to need to do a string of tweets with some of those references there. I've been sort of frantically trying to take everything down and um, and try and, and try and capture some of that. So I think a, a lot okay. of our listeners would probably appreciate that as well. Um, just just as some of those some of those key links. <laughs> I feel a blog post coming on. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to write your your blog post. Uh, that would be really amazing. Yeah, I was just thinking while we were talking, if there's a way I could kind of sum this up for you. Um, so I've ended up with three C's, which I've written down while we were talking. Um, oh, amazing. Do you want to have a go? Give us them. I'll have a go at these. You can tell me if they make sense. Um, so <laughs> it's really three things. Uh, so the essence of trauma-informed practice, I think it's helping children feel connected. So that's connected, as you were saying, to some significant adults who they know will care for them. Uh, that's really, really important. But it's also feeling connected to other people that they value. Uh, a really, really, really big part of trauma-informed practice in schools, I think, is skilling up the peer group to look out for each other. 
anything we can do that reduces bullying and improves positive relationships among the children and young people is going to help people feel more connected. They also need to feel connected to themselves, <laughs> to have experiences where I was talking about the cognitions earlier, where they can get a, a, a good sense of them themselves. So they need to feel connected. They need to feel coherent. So they need to feel that life makes sense. So all the basics about predictable and calm routines, all the basic ways in which we make schools feel coherent to children, those are really important. But they also need, and this is something James and I spoke about a lot in the car, they need a sense of narrative. They need a joined up story of their life. Um, and that's not about teachers going back and digging into the past and getting them to talk about their traumatic experiences. Please do not do that. It is re-traumatized. <laughs> Don't make children talk about things. Key message there. Underline it. But it's about a forward narrative, about where I'm going, where my life's going to be, the kind of life I want to build, where I want to go. And it's a coherent sense of self. So something complex trauma can do is it can really fragment our sense of self. So people can almost get to the point where they honestly believe they're not there, that they don't exist. Uh, but usually we end up feeling a little bit incoherent, a little bit kind of who who am I? Something schools can do really well is help children grow multiple identities. And that gives them a lot of resilience. So I am James. I'm also someone who plays the piano. I'm also someone who likes to play with dogs. I'm also someone who likes to make friends. I'm someone who likes to read books. Can you see all the different identities I've built there? And the more I have of those, the more solid my sense of, of coherence of self is. So we've got connected, coherent. And then the last one I scribbled down, which I can't read because I shouldn't try and write while I'm still <laughs> talking, is we need to feel capable. And that's where the learning comes in, the core business of schools. It's why the reading, writing and arithmetic, they're sometimes set up as a strong contrast to well-being. And I think that's really, really unfortunate because that sense that I'm capable, I can learn stuff. It's a key part of building our identities. It means we can change our lives. We can change the world. And finding opportunities for children to express care can sometimes be the most powerful thing. When I was a trainee, I worked with he was a delightful 15 year old kid. He was a really great kid. But he was so terrified in school uh, and he used to just go and hug the janitor's dog and that would get him through the rest of the day if he could have a hug with the dog for, for five minutes. And the thing which we worked out, which was a revelation to me and shows how stupid I can be sometimes, is it wasn't that the dog was caring for him, it's that he'd had an opportunity to express the care for the dog. That's what made that experience meaningful for him. So all the different ways we can help children care, help let them help us. All those little things we can do, they help kids feel capable. And then the last thing, and again, this is something I know James feels strongly about too, is finding ways that children can be advocates. Uh, they can stand up not just for themselves, but for causes that might matter for them, uh, address any injustices that they find in school, or, or express their, their feelings about injustices in the wider world. So connected, coherent and capable, those are the three things we're trying to and that's the essence of trauma-informed practice, which was your first question. And I've only just thought of that as the answer. So I thought I'd throw that in. It's really helpful because one of He's the questions I me. was going to ask... <laughs> <laughs> one of the questions that I was going to ask was, can you give us, this actually sounds really shallow now, five quick tips for being for bringing trauma-sensitive practice to your classroom. But actually, I think... yeah. I think your three C's cover it, connected, coherent and capable. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. James, we're back to you. And, James Cook. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah. It's, still laughing. No, still it's laughing definitely that. Me. It's that sense of capability that is probably leading me on to where the next question is was going anyway in terms of, in terms of this essence, because I... I know that we've talked at length around about this dichotomy that's sometimes perceived around about well-being and then attainment as if they are, um, yeah. as if they're, you know, opposites of the yeah. spectrum. And actually for for children and young people to, and for, and for, for the practitioner to be trauma-informed, then we've got to then have that sense where we do see children and young people as capable for, and I completely... Um, relate to what you're saying there yeah. and I think that what we can't shy away of is there definitely are some challenges in terms of trauma-informed practice 
some of those challenges even maybe from what you talked yeah. about as being positives and um, the likes of yes it is quite a sort of national public media message around about uh, particularly terminology around about trauma-informed practice but actually in itself that can yeah. unleash some challenges and yeah. just want to try and sort of talk around about that that we've got those three key messages that you that you talked around about there in terms of those elements of the of the three c's but actually what are the what are the loopholes that we need to look out yeah. for yeah so i think i just want to come back to that dichotomy thing because i think it's part of the key to all of it um because it's often an adult-centered discussion about what we think is important and we we sort of we we pull out I mean, really good things like you know, Maslow's hierarchy or whatever. We we talk about those things. The the reason I struggle with it is I think we need to be having a much more uh, child centered discussion about what's important to the children. Uh, so why are they showing up at school? And I think this is going to be a really really important thing, uh, particularly this year, uh, not to make assumptions about why they're why they're showing up for uh, at school. So, of course, we want children to feel connected and we want to to provide positive relationships and so on. Uh, if we just do that, <laughs> we're, we're not fulfilling some of the reasons why they might be coming to school, because a lot of them will be coming yeah. to school to, to learn things. So as soon as you set up a dichotomy, I think we're departing a bit from the kids' experience of, of school. But we're also just ignoring the obvious fact. And, you know, I think about what makes me resilient in life. You know, I, I, you know, how do I cope with the letter about the renewal of the car insurance, which is a quote, 200 pounds more than it should be. I can cope with that because I'm literate and numerate and I know how to have the phone conversations with, with people. So, so basic attainment is actually a big part of, a big part of resilience. And I think we lose something when we, when we set them in opposition. Um, so I think that's one of the things that, um, trauma informed stuff, it can, end up being a thing in itself whereas we need to look at children's lives holistically and we need to keep that child-centered thing which is the basic reflective step so going back to what you said earlier you're talking about seeing children as capable yeah that's really important but what's even more important is that they see themselves as capable now you're absolutely right they're only going to do that if we see them as capable first but the important thing is how the children are seeing seeing themselves and just to generalise that point, I think working with children, especially if they have a lot of distress and a lot of difficult behaviours, it's natural to think some negative things about them. And I think, again, one of the pitfalls of trauma-informed practice is that it almost requires us to be saints and angels, and we're not saints and angels. We're going to get frustrated and irritated. We're going to think other people are terrible people sometimes. And for me, the get out of that is that whatever we think about them is only a fraction of how they feel about themselves. And, and that can immediately bring us back to the empathy. So there's that. I think there's a sense that it can become a little bit of a kind of blancmange, uh, a sort of a bunch of it's nice to be nice. Trauma's horrible stuff. It's ghastly things have happened to children. Uh, and we need to keep it that real and that raw and not let it get stuck in sort of side debates about what we call things or whether it's okay to give children stickers or or not those are on the side issues to to the main to the main thing uh i think another pitfall is um we've got to be really careful we don't cast children as helpless victims and the adults as the rescuers uh it's really easy to fall into that i've done it hundreds of times as a therapist it's just a natural thing we do because as adults we want to care for children but we need to put the children and their capabilities and their growing control of their lives at, at the center and again sometimes the discourse about trauma-informed stuff it can become a little bit of a rescuer discourse and that's not always so helpful then lastly and i will freely admit that this was me in the early 90s uh, would have a conversation along the lines of, I'm really, really sad. Um, you know, I'm really sad that your guinea pig died yesterday and now we've got to get on to doing um, quadratic equations. Uh, that kind of, I'm here to teach. I'm not here to be a therapist. Um, and I think 
it's very easy to dismiss that and to say that those teachers don't get it. I think it's really important that we understand that that's articulating a value and a value that we have to work with. And I think the way to work with it is to come back to this what's effective teaching. So if James, me James, not you James, is standing there inconsolable because his guinea pig died the day before, he's not in a great space for learning about quadratic equations. It's not going to be effective. So the effective teaching is actually to respond to where James is, and he'll learn about quadratic equations that much more quickly. Um, but I think I think <clears throat> dividing the teaching profession into people who get it and people who don't get it isn't always helpful, and some trauma-informed discourse tends tends to do that. There's really nothing different between good differentiation for learning and uh, the reflective step for trauma-informed thinking. It's the same step just done with a different topic area. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm so going to use this opportunity. Wait for another question. Or, or to be, or, <laughs> no, or for I you just, to press I the just stop want button. to pick up on something you said there, just <laughs> since you've already answered the, the next question that Anita was yeah. going to ask anyway. Um, oh, and cripes, what have I said? I'm really interested in that, oh, right. what you were saying there around about, and um, I've been listening to uh, Brene Brown, Dare to Lead, and she has just been talking around about this. Um, oh, yeah this dichotomy again but around about the difference between sympathy and empathy yeah and is there something there sort of what you were saying laterally there around about the yeah. guinea pig is there a connection with that and and what makes us effective educators in your perspective yeah i mean it, again one can one can chop words in different different ways and i'm i'm not familiar with that that particular uh person and their, and, and their work so much but yeah i mean part of empathy for me is having the courage to use our own feelings to understand what's going on um so it's it sometimes one can be really frightened in the classroom and that tells us tells us that the children are scared so so we can we can use our own feelings to to help children but we can regulate them because we're adults and can stay on top of them um i'm Sympathy, it, it's about the stance. I think it goes back to something Anita said earlier, that children can tell when it's a strategy and they can tell when it's genuine and something doesn't have to work to work if it's, if it's genuine. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm speaking to the point you, you raised, uh, directly or, or, or randomly. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was asking. Yeah. yeah. And I think we don't, <laughs> something to bear in mind is, Empathy isn't an absolute good. So some children, it's very mm -hmm. easy to intrude too far. We can be too understanding when what they need is space. And um, we'll quickly know because they'll push us out again. Uh, so you can, you can overwhelm a child as much by caring too much as you can uh, leave them incapable by caring too little. Uh, there's a, a uh, wonderful book by Peter Hobson called The Cradle of Thought, which is actually about infants. But it's really, really clear on this aspect of attachment-based practice, which is we often talk about attachment in terms of closeness and holding children, and hugging them, and safe base, and so on. The other half of attachment is giving space. And uh, attachment-informed practice, trauma-informed practice, it, 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 it's all about letting the children regulate the distance letting them regulate the emotional closeness, making an offer of empathy and closeness and seeing how that goes and backing off a bit or moving further in if that's not an intrusion. Uh, I'm just uh, thinking of a really practical thing uh, in the, <clears throat> if I can just do a, club, uh, a plug here for the wonderful <laughs> book group, Scottish Educators Connect. Um, there was, for me, uh, just... It was a really, I mean, I'm privileged to be able to listen into that group. I'm, I'm entranced by the way people are engaging with the, with the material. It's, it's just wonderful. And I've learned a lot from it. But an eye-opening thing for me about three weeks ago was a discussion about emotional check-ins and how intrusive that can be, if, if not done well, uh, that a child suddenly has to display their internal emotional state to everybody. Uh, or I have to simulate happiness by high-fiving you or whatever. For, for children who've experienced a lot of trauma, these can be really, really intrusive moments, and we need to handle them 
handle them really carefully. So the public-private boundary, but also just that sense of closeness. They want us to be there, but not necessarily in there with them. And the further in there we are with them, the less maybe we can we can help sometimes. I think the emotional check-in discussion on the Connect group was really yeah. um, interesting. Oh. You're right, because yeah. certainly it appears, I mean, from a, a critical perspective as just another one of those things that happened in education that everybody jumped on without yeah. really due <clears throat> consideration of the impact of having a child either fake popping their name on happy because yeah. that's what everybody does or having to out themselves yeah. to the rest of the class as feeling angry, sad, upset or whatever. Yeah. Definitely. I'm glad, I'm glad yeah. you, you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, ju just think of our adult meetings. A number of times we turn up and say, I've got too thick and I'm feeling really grumpy. Uh, I mean, I've started doing it purely as self-defense because I get ashamed of myself, but uh, people don't tend to do this. And again, the, the get out of jail card is look at this through the eyes of the children. Think of this as an experience for the children and don't make assumptions about it. Now, it's really unfair of me to pick on that one example. And I'm doing the very thing I criticized, which is saying I'm reducing a really important thing about human givens to a, to a technical debate about a, a strategy and a practice. But the, the key thing is, uh, it, it's, it's through the eyes of a child. How are they seeing this? How are they experiencing this? And as you said right at the beginning, Anita, looking at their behaviour and some of the small cues in their behaviour for signs of how, how they're experiencing it. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, for Thank our you, final James. question, and I think it draws together what we've been, what we've been talking around about is... Yeah. Um, you have quite an expansive portfolio in terms of the stuff that you've been involved in, James, around not just trauma-informed practice, but um, now in your role in terms of earlier as educational psychologists, the, the work that you have done around about um, the likes of Realising the Ambition, and uh, which we know you've talked around about in the Edge of Our Early Years podcast. Um, the work that you've done in um, early literacy, language and communication. Yeah. Um, just a bit of more around about, you know, where can people find out about some of um, some of your work? Um, thinking around about the likes of your Twitter or any sort of websites and things that you've contributed to. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, I'm 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 always really happy to engage with people on on Twitter. Uh, if people have heard this podcast and they want to engage and ask questions, I'm I'm really really happy to to do that uh if there's something that i've said that they don't agree with i'm really happy to have a discussion about them so um my twitter handle is just james ed psych um very happy to engage with people yeah i don't really have any Bumps other public platforms do i um oh bumps to bands. oh yeah so <laughs> i i forgot that because that's not really mine i'm i'm just the uh the kind of the, the managing editor of it so uh, bumps2bens.com. Uh, it's a kind of assemblage of ideas and resources to help children's development from before birth through to end of early level. And we're about to do a, a, a school aid section of it as, as well. Um, and it's, it's compiled ideas from speech therapists, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, dieticians, um, who else could I mention? Teachers. Early as practitioners, psychologists, parents, uh, whatever. It's meant to be a kind of just how to help children's language development, executive function, how to manage behavior, deal with night terrors, uh, how to brush your teeth, uh, just loads and loads of stuff that we've, we've made as a resource. Yeah. Uh, so people are really welcome um, to, to check that out. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for taking the time to come and speak with us today. I know that the listeners that will be listening to this podcast will, will really value that dive into trauma-informed practice and, and the approaches taken, particularly if they also joined us in terms of the Whole Brain Child book, whether that be through the Google Meets or, or also via Twitter and the, and the blog. Next week, as we mentioned, we're going to be speaking with Yvonne Fulton. She's a Deputy Head for Inclusion and Wellbeing Service within Falkirk Council. And we're going to be talking, as mentioned in the podcast, around about compassionate and connected classrooms, delving further into some of the practical ideas of looking at trauma-informed practice within your classrooms. Thank you all for tuning in. We are really grateful to everybody who listens to the podcast, responds to the podcast and share these episodes. We are 
blown away just by how much people are supporting James and I in trying to explore these issues further. As ever, you can keep up with our professional learning by checking out scottisheducatorsconnect.com or following hashtag scottisheducatorsconnect on Twitter. Thank you, and you will hear from us again next week. James and James, thank, thank you. you, and goodbye. Thanks for having me.